Hi, I'm Raji Sohal. On the podcast today, have we reached a vaccination ceiling? How likely is Russia to invade Ukraine? And what is the U.S. to do about it? And I also checked in with an epidemiologist on the risk faced by loosening COVID-19 restrictions. And is it time for some real hefty fees to curb the housing market? Let's take a listen. Existing vaccines are shown to offer protection against severe cases of the virus. This is great news and should send everyone running to get the jab, right? Well, only 76%, 76% of Canadians are fully vaccinated. So what gives? Have we reached the max vax? Should we give up on the remainder of the population that hasn't gotten a second dose or for that matter, any dose at all? Joining me now is Eric B. Kennedy. He is Assistant Professor of Disaster and Emergency Management at York University. Good morning, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for giving us some time this morning. So you researched the question of vaccine hesitancy. What were you looking at in your study? Yeah, absolutely. As the vaccine rolled out across Canada, we were interested in understanding how people were making their decisions. And in particular, we wanted to get to know the Canadians who were deciding to wait a little bit for their vaccine to figure out what they were waiting for, how long they planned to wait. Um, And so we did a number of experiments via a national survey to try and understand how people were making their decisions. Okay, what did you find? Yeah, so we found a couple of really interesting things. Um, One, I think, was that we were able to document uh, the range of reasons that people gave for waiting. And it was perhaps a little bit surprising, but really interesting to find out um, just what variety of of these answers people provided. So there were certainly some people who had concerns about vaccines in general. But what we found was that Canadians expressed, by and large, very nuanced views about the vaccine. Uh, They wanted to know how it affected people with medical conditions like them, right? If they had a particular uh, health condition or if they were pregnant or in a specific place in their life, find out whether tests had been done on folks who had similar conditions. Um, We also saw things like altruism show up in waiting, right? The desire to allow those who were more vulnerable or more exposed to get the vaccine first. So that was one thing. We found these really nuanced and interesting reasons for waiting, and it wasn't just one reason for everyone. The other thing okay, that we Eric, found, I find that's, I find yeah, that's kind of surprising. Yeah, it, it really, I think, speaks to the amount of thought that Canadians are putting into this question, right? We found that um, folks were considering this in, in quite a bit of detail and had a, a variety of, of motivations. And what I think that means is that there's room for empathetic listening to help meet people where they're at and perhaps persuade them uh, or at the very least understand and make them feel heard uh, in this decision-making process as it continues. Okay, so your take is that we shouldn't give up on them? Yeah, for sure. I think what we found in our study um, was that even the people who expressed that they probably weren't going to get vaccinated at all In fact, there were things you could do to reach them. So one thing we looked at was the timing, right? Whether you were making the decision to get the vaccine today or in a month or in six months or in a year. And what we found was that uh, as time progressed, as it became a decision a little further out, the number of people willing to get the shot increased. 
And that increase came from people who said they were going to wait, but it also came in equal part from people who said they weren't going to get it at all, right? So if you ask these folks, are you ever going to get the vaccine? They would say no. But if you change the scenario a little bit, if you gave them more time to think about it or gave them time to see it working in others, they became more willing, even though they wouldn't have articulated that themselves. So, yeah, I think there are possibilities to reach new groups and to connect with those who might still have concerns remaining. Eric, that is so fascinating. I think a lot of people have taken that for granted and actually assumed that the people holding out were just ardent about their views and unchanging. But your your study shows a lot of flexibility there. Yeah, I think we sort of have an advantage and a challenge that lie ahead of us. Um one advantage is that if we do take this listening seriously, if we meet people where they're at, if we understand their concerns, if we connect them with good resources, we see even from the data that there are new Canadians getting vaccinated every day, right? Folks who haven't had their first shot who are going in because they have that personal connection or a family member has taken the time to listen and and talk with them over an extended period, or they've had a chance to meet with their doctor and find out more from a trusted source. And so I think the good news is that there's potential there. Of course, the challenge going forward is going to be that we've learned that boosters are very important and likely down the road, we'll also need variations of the vaccine that are tailored to some of these emerging variants. And so there's this challenge of, can we get people their first doses? And I think there's some good news that we will continue to make progress on that front. Um, But we also will have these emerging questions about how do we make sure that people continue to get vaccinated as the uh, science demands. Okay. We also see that vaccination rate for 5 to 11-year-olds is quite low, which suggests that there are many parents out there who are fully vaccinated but then don't get the jab for their kids. I find that super interesting. Any theories on what's going on there? Absolutely. There's been lots of work that's looked at the phenomenon of vaccination in children. Um, And I I mean, a very brief summary um, is that we care about our kids a lot, right? We are are doing our best to take care of them, to make good decisions, to keep them healthy. And I think if we we honor that and recognize that, um, that's part of that empathetic listening process that I was talking about. So um, this is a case where it's going to be really important to uh, affirm what parents are feeling, right? To validate the values that they hold and the worries and concerns that they have about their kids and make sure that we're providing these tailored and these personalized conversations, right? It's less about one big ad that has to run on TV or radio for everyone, as convenient as that would be, and more about how do we reach people one-on-one, hear what they're worried about, hear what they're concerned about, and connect them with good, reliable information from people that they trust to help encourage them to make a decision that aligns with their values and protects them, their family, and their community. Okay. Thank you so much, Eric, for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we've been hearing this past week that Russia might invade the Ukraine. Why is the U.S. involved? Well, scholar Tatsyana Kulikevich is an affiliate professor at the Institute on on Russia at the University of South Florida, and she joins me on the line now to break it all down for us. Hi, Tatsyana. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. 
So you look at the Eastern European part of the world very closely. For those who don't, what do we need to know about the existing relationship between Ukraine and Russia? Well, uh, the uh, Ukraine received its independence 30 years ago and uh, was divided a country with the Western part looking for a closer relationship with the West and uh, the Eastern parts uh, uh, looking for closer relationship with Russia. However, after the annexation of the Crimea in 2014 and when the, the armed conflict started in the Donbass area, um, in Ukraine, in eastern parts of Ukraine. Uh, the uh, relationship with uh, Russia uh, deteriorated very much, and uh, uh, most of the Ukraine started uh, looking at uh, Russia negatively. For example, according to surveys um, in September 2021, more than 80% of Ukrainians uh, looked at um, Putin uh, very negatively. Uh, so uh, the Ukraine and Russia relationship uh, loans back. The, it's, it's a very long relationship, but uh, and they are neighbors, but um, uh, very much uh, uh, kind of going downwards. Okay. And so looking at what's happening in the last week and a half, why is Putin threatening to invade Ukraine? Well, there are different reasons. Um, uh, the main one I see that he feels uh, that he can, uh, and uh, the precedents for that are uh, like several. For example, he uh, he he considers uh, uh, Ukraine as his sphere of influence, and uh, that's why he wants to kind of you know, has a claim to uh, block Ukraine from joining the European Union and NATO. And that's because um, the sanctions against, uh, U- against uh, Russia for he- its um, interference in the 2020 United States presidential election and uh, the cyber attack against uh, more than 18,000 people uh, in the United States government were very uh, more more symbolic than uh, uh, anything, and they didn't hurt uh, Putin and Russia, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and Russia itself very much. Uh, another thing went unnoticed was uh, not unnoticed, but without much repercussions or any repercussions was when Putin backed Belarus's. Pres- uh, leader, authoritarian leader Alexander Lukashenko, when he uh, uh, he his uh, brutal crackdown on mass protests in the in in Belarus, and uh, also Putin understands that uh, the European Union is divided also because he had uh, several instances uh, with. Uh, uh, the Western leaders supporting him while in office, for example, former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder or um, uh, French Prime Minister Francois Fillon. Uh, and uh, they, while in office, they were advocating for, uh, for uh, kind of to be, uh, to have closer relationship with Russia. And after they left office, they also joined uh, boards of Russian state-owned companies, 
currently, two days ago, there is, there is a news uh, that Germany currently blocks NATO uh, ally Estonia from transferring weapons to Ukraine. So that's also another uh, indication that uh, that that's, that Putin can see that uh, there is no unified unified front from uh, Europe there. Right. No unified front. And you also mentioned there that Kremlin, the Kremlin is uh, obsessed, basically, with trying to block Ukraine from joining the EU and NATO. But what do Ukrainians want? So, and uh, as I mentioned before, uh, before the annexation of uh, the Crimean Peninsula in 2014, uh, Ukrainian country is... uh, could, could, could be described as divided in two parts, Western and Eastern. It is a big country as a former Soviet Union country, and um, it, it became more unified uh, than anything after this uh, armed conflict in uh, Eastern Ukraine began, which has been ongoing since 2014. Uh, so uh, the, the views and the... Uh, against Russia are more, more unified uh, than ever. So Ukrainians are unified. So, for example, the president, the current Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, came to power in 2019 after he campaigned uh, for anti-corruption, economic renewal, and peace in the Donbass region. So, yes, Ukraine also wants to apply to the European Union membership for the European Union membership in 2024 and ambitions to join NATO. And uh, again, more than uh, 80% of Ukrainians uh, do not like Putin, according to uh, surveys. And then now, uh, several days ago, U.S. President Joe Biden has, he's, he's threatened Putin against invading Ukraine. Some have said, although he's, his language was strong, that it wasn't enough. Why is the U.S. so interested in what's happening over there? Well, United States um, uh, <laughs> promised Ukraine uh, the securities. Uh, long uh, ago, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in, there is a, a document and the meeting that's called Budapest Memorandum Security, uh, uh, security uh, that promised Ukraine uh, every possible security for its when he, if he gave, if if the country gives up its nuclear arsenal, and it was not just Ukraine, it was also Belarus and Kazakhstan, and uh, who promised uh, the it was the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, and Russia, and Russia violated this memorandum uh, when it um, started uh, the annexation of Crimea and uh, providing support for the Donbas conflict. So uh, United States uh, uh, trying to deliver on the promises, uh, and there are other reasons also because the, such conflict will create um, a lot of difficulties uh, economically in, in, in even for the United States and Europe. Uh, gas prices will go up, uh, for example, right. and uh, you know the this conflict is is uh, <laughs> in the United States is a hegemon right now. So it's 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 overlooking everything in the world. So it's it's expected that the United States is not uh, kind of you know is 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 trying to be involved. 
Well, everyone is watching this unfold very closely around the world. Tatiana, thank you so much for your perspective today. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. If you've got friends or family in Ontario, you've no doubt heard about the difficult lockdowns and challenging COVID restrictions with closed restaurants, gyms, cinemas, and lots more. Well, all of that is about to change. On January 31st, the province is supposed to see a gradual lifting of restrictions. Here to talk with me about that is Dr. Colin Furness. He's an epidemiologist at U of T. Good morning, Colin. Good morning. Thank you so much for uh, giving us some of your time today. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks. So what kind of scenario is Ontario in right now to warrant lifting restrictions? It's a difficult time. We're not doing much testing, so we have very little awareness about prevalence. We have very little awareness about where outbreaks are happening. Uh, We know we have tens of thousands of cases a day, but we don't know anything about them. Uh, What we do know is uh, hospitalizations are up, uh, which is as expected. Uh, They're staying up. There's some suggestion from our wastewater testing and from positivity or the proportion of the small tests we are doing that are positive that things may have crested. So we think we're past the peak. It's a guess, but we think so. The problem is we have a lot of unvaccinated people in Ontario. Um, We have open schools, and of course that a lot of kids have unvaccinated children or siblings uh, below the age of five, and we're about to open restaurants at the same time that we're still not doing things like cancer surgeries. So a lot of people have said maybe we need to allow, we need to get our healthcare system able to at least do life-saving surgeries before we open bars and restaurants. And, And so that's what we're facing right now. This is a government that has been very pro-bar and restaurant, less so about health care. And, and so I think, I think we're going to find that, that Ontario has, is, is choosing to open bars and restaurants too soon. Okay, so it sounds like you think that this is a premature move. What, as an epidemiologist, do you expect to happen then following the reopening? I think what we'll see is not a dramatic rise in cases, but if we're at the peak or just past the peak, I think it'll extend that peak. So I think it will it will sort of extend the misery, uh, and and that's unfortunate because although Omicron is milder for many, it's far more severe for some, and this is why our hospitals are being overwhelmed. So I think what it will do is it will place more strain on hospitals for a number of extra weeks at precisely the time when they can least handle it. So I think that's unfortunately that's what it's. Going to look like. I'm hopeful that sometime in the next several days, Mr. Ford may announce a slight delay just looking at strain on hospitals. I think to me that is the most important thing. And I understand that people who work in the kitchens in one Ontario hospital are now being pressed into nursing duties despite the fact that they don't have any training because there aren't any staff working in the hospital able to care for patients. Wow. Yeah, we know that a lot of the restriction measures are meant to do exactly that, what you described there, to protect the hospitals from the overwhelm, from being overwhelmed. So if we are not past that hump and the restrictions are lifted in Ontario on January 31st, what what happens to the system in the hospital? It gets a little bit worse before it gets better. And when it gets worse, what happens is that people who would have done very well with treatment, be it for COVID or be it for having a stroke or or for other kinds of life-threatening injuries, a car accident, people who would be fine with adequate care may end up dying because, uh, not because of their injuries, but because of an, it, just no 
no access to no access to health care in a reasonable period of time. So we, we end up having no health care system for a period of many weeks, possibly longer. And that's bad for everybody. So that that's that unfortunately I think is what we're doing. Um, having restaurants open but but not having hospitals able to do the work that they need to do. Okay. There was practically a revolt okay, here in BC when gyms were closed last month, and then they just reopened, but with extreme restriction uh, in capacity, but also in protocols, then ironically, during the time, or maybe not ironically, during the time that these gyms were closed, people were going stir crazy from losing their daily exercise routines. And and they got COVID in the last month, many of them. So a lot of those people are saying, okay, what is the point of getting vaccinated or of, uh, you know, all the closure hoopla when oh, I caught COVID and it was just like having a bad cold. What do those folks need to understand? I think that's a really good question. And gyms are worrisome because they're places where people share air. Now, BC does not believe that airborne transmission is significant. And and as a government, that's a mistake. Um, And and so I think things like restaurants and gyms are far more dangerous than a lot of people are, are led to realize. But for many, as I say, for whom Omicron, they're vaccinated and they're healthy, and Omicron doesn't seem to be that bad, I would say two things. One is every prior version of COVID has been resulting in a lot of people losing brain tissue, and that's brain tissue that doesn't grow back, and even with what looks like a mild case. Hopefully, Omicron doesn't do that, but we don't know it yet. So to have the sniffles and lose brain tissue at the same time is a very, very different situation than just having the sniffles. The other thing to remember is there are lots of people for whom this is not an easy time, and that's why hospitals are getting overwhelmed. That's everyone who's not vaccinated, so some who choose not to, but some including kids under five who can't, and we, we see the highest risk in children under three months of age. We need to protect infants. We need to protect young children. We need to protect people with, with uh, vulnerabilities because of their health condition. We need to protect elderly people. So those are all the things we need to do. We don't need to shut things down forever, but we need to be reasonable, I think, as a society and say, uh, we're going to have to have takeout food and outdoor exercise for a few weeks so that these folks can be healthy and live. That's the decision that I think needs to be made by any responsible government. If you're just joining us right now, my guest is Dr. Colin Furnest, an epidemiologist with uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, Colin, will COVID-19 mutate until the end of time, or is there an endgame in sight? You know, that's obviously the $64,000 question, and I really wish I could answer that definitively. You know, there's different scenarios. <clears throat> One is that Omicron is so contagious uh, that it beats out other variants, and as it moves its way through the population, we end up with herd immunity, and it burns itself out, and we're done. That may well be what happened to Spanish flu, although I have to say we don't really know. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is a mutation to something more contagious, which is unlikely because COVID is already, Omicron is already the most contagious thing we've ever seen. Uh, it's time mm-hmm. it's about tied with measles for that, for that title. So it seems to me that we, we may not, there may not be much room for it to become more contagious, um, but it might simply be more immune escaping. And if that's the case, we're going to have to look at reformulated vaccines. I think we win. I think vaccines win. I think we get out from under this. What I couldn't tell you is, are there more variants and do we need a reformulated vaccine to get there? So it's either either the, you know, the end game is very soon, like this summer, or it's going to take you know, maybe another year of having to reformulate, test, and administer uh, an improved vaccine that, that takes care of a new immune escaping variant. It's going to be probably one or the other. And meanwhile, are vaccinologists uh, trying to do that guesswork now in redesigning uh, the vaccine continually, or is that something that they wait until a variant arrives before they start 
that kind of work. Oh, they're working, they're working on it now, no doubt. If Omicron vanquishes other variants, which it looks like it's doing, then Omicron is the one to design for it because subsequent variants will be based on Omicron, or that's actually quite likely to be the case. That work is already going on. And fortunately, with mRNA vaccines, that kind of adjustment can be done quite easily. There's also work being done on what's called a pan-corona vaccine. That is one that targets the cell, the, the virus, in a more fundamental way that isn't nearly as vulnerable to changes based on mutations. And if we can get a vaccine like that up and going, and that could be that could be reality in a year, um, possibly. I mean, optimistically, but possibly. Uh, then you know that really might be the end game. That that's what that's that's how it may go. Um, you know, I, I wish I had an answer that says, yeah, we're done. We're done. We're done in a few weeks. But unfortunately, while that's possible, it's only one scenario. Okay. Thank you so much for giving us uh, your time today, Colin. My pleasure. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Raji Sohal. Well, my next guest has written a piece in the Vancouver Sun that doesn't mince words when it comes to housing policy in Canada. Vancouver Sun columnist Douglas Todd says he's seeing aggressive policies to bring down investing, but not in Canada. And he joins me on the line now. Good morning, Doug. Morning, Raji. So in your opinion piece in the sun, you praise an announcement in Singapore that deters people from buying a second home. What is that policy and what is it that you like about it? Yeah, um, it's uh, they're doing trying to do something. Well, Ottawa does nothing about the huge amount of investors that are now in the real estate market. Like in Metro Vancouver, 44% of buyers of properties built in the last five years are investors. So almost half of them. All these condos and houses are going up. They're being built by people who already own a dwelling in Vancouver or in BC. And some of them own two and some of them own three and some of them own four. They're taking advantage of low interest rates to think this is the best way. It's better than getting in the stock market. We'll invest in housing, right? So it's freezing out first-time buyers. So what Singapore has done is put a 17% tax, just like a property transfer tax, on any person even a citizen who owns, who buys a second property. And it goes up to um, 25% if they try to buy a third property. And then, so that's pretty extreme. (laughs) And and we have no taxes on investors. And then it it also treats, in Canada, we treat permanent residents just like everybody else when it comes to buying houses. But in Singapore, uh, they are actually taxing permanent residents even for buying their first place. I think it's a concern that some people don't really ever want to become citizens, but they want to become permanent residents so they can be buy houses. And then, of course, we have some foreign buyer tax, and they brought in another one that's more serious than any one we have in BC. It's 30% on any foreign buyer. So experts... Yeah, that's hefty. It's pretty hefty, yeah, it is. I mean, Singapore is a kind of a... Uh, it's a bit more authoritarian kind of place than we are. It's it's sort of a democracy. That's but putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like at least they're doing something to help out the average people there, right? Okay, what, Doug, what do in you your think? opinion, what do you think <laughs> yeah. we need to be doing in Canada? Well, I actually think... Um, uh, I, th- I'm, I support the speculation vacancy tax we have in BC, right? Which... Uh, and I, uh, well, I think we should be raising interest rates, but that's up to the Bank of Canada. And I actually, you know, I'm not a policy expert like Reese Kesselman is, uh, I interviewed, but 
I, I think some sort of um, taxes on investors could really slow things down. So that, like, my big concern is people who aren't in the housing market yet, young people especially, right? So we got to do something, but there's not much going on. People just let the market decide. Yeah. Yeah. And is there a concern there then that we will reach, if we haven't reached it already, a point where uh, just getting into a first home feels near impossible? Uh, that's what that's what, where we're at right now, right? Prices went up twenty percent in the last year in in Canada. You know, it's just unbelievable. Like everybody thought during a pandemic, oh, exactly. <laughs> everybody thought it'd be a big downturn, and everybody would just be out of jobs and stuff like that, but. It didn't happen because so much money was printed by Ottawa, actually. And uh, and then the interest rates are so low. They're probably going to start going up in the next couple of months. But, so, um, Doug, help let me know yeah. what you think about this. Because I feel like the discussion we're not having in Canada is whether mm-hmm. a house is meant to be a place to live or is it a place to invest? It's almost a philosophical question. Is it an investment that you need to, to think about saving for your kids? And then we know that that becomes this cycle that never ends. And people start with this scarcity attitude and wonder how they can become real estate moguls themselves. I mean, I know people who uh, you wouldn't expect to own several condos or you know a few houses, uh, but they did so because of that scarcity mentality. They're just so worried that they're not going to be able to provide for future generations that they have to quickly get in whether or not they could afford it. Mm. That's that's a really interesting way to put it, that kind of average people are becoming investors. And as you say, maybe out of fear, and maybe they're stretching themselves too far, way too far. <laughs> you know, when interest rates go up, it's going to, it could be kind of ugly for a lot of kind of average investors, not the really well-off ones who put so much into housing and as I think you're suggesting, they're doing it to help their kids. Um, they are. And meanwhile, and, and people who don't have parents who can help them are completely frozen out and basically are leaving Metro Vancouver. Sure, you especially know? you look yeah. at some of these new condos being built. We're talking about condos in Metro Vancouver, not in the heart of downtown, that are going for half a million dollars at times like that is just a while then we got to this uh point it seems really quickly how much do you think uh bc residents would take to uh, this kind of like uh, a surcharge that they're doing in singapore like a really big one yeah well they'd be certainly complaining but it's it's from some quarters right the developers would go insane probably and uh their supporters of which there are many um but then there'd be a portion of the population that likes it right um realtors wouldn't be too happy because it would it would affect you know how many buyers come out and what kind of prices they get but then it's just something you pull on i bet you the province would be kind of split on it um there isn't largely support for the um speculation and vacancy tax you know you i haven't seen a poll recently but it wasn't the 75 80 percent range so Maybe a tax surcharge on investors would actually fly with the general public. What do you think? (laughs) Oh, Doug, we could talk about this all day. Let me tell you, (laughs) I found your uh, article really interesting. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. I'm really glad you're interested in the issue. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. 
be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.